Well, we're going to be finishing out our uh, series on marriage and uh, the vows that we make, the for better, for worse. Uh, some of you have been watching these videos and you laugh because you can see yourself in them and you talk, think about what we would be doing if we were up there, uh, who would be hitting with the uh, pool noodle, and you can kind of see yourself in it. Others, you look up at there and you watch these couples and you're like, these people make me sick. Man... Wish I could find my soulmate like that, you know. It seems like these people are perfect for each other. Look at the kind of relationship they have. Look how they're kind of like play hitting with the noodle. <laughs> We're looking for baseball bats in our house. Uh, yeah, we have this idea of a soulmate, which actually is not scriptural. We somehow try to uh, push it into the scriptural mindset with some idea of uh, how Adam and the rib and and Eve, and that whole story from Genesis. Uh, but the whole idea of a soulmate actually comes from Greek mythology with Plato, uh, saying that Zeus got so jealous of just how powerful humanity was back when they had two faces and one head and four arms and four legs, and so he split humanity apart and, and separated you out from your other half, and now your goal in life, of course, is to be reunited with your other half so you can regain the spiritual power that you once had back in the day. That's actually where the whole thing comes from. Uh, yet it sort of makes its way into all of our romantic movies. Now, I may be dating myself with some of the movies here, but they're the classics of soulmateness. Uh, the Jerry Maguire, You Complete Me. Uh, you've got the pretty woman who's looking for the fairy tale. Uh, then you switch over to Sleepless in Seattle, and it's a story of Tom Hanks, whose soulmate has died. And he's wondering, is, is there another soulmate out there for him? And of course, Meg Ryan is listening to this, and she's engaged to somebody, but all of a sudden she realizes that Tom Hanks actually is her soulmate, so she dumps the guy that she's with and beelines it straight to the Empire State Building to meet up with her soulmate, right? Or there's you know, more modern examples of this. Uh, if you've ever seen the, the show How I Met Your Mother, uh, the whole story is about Ted watching his, his good friends, Marshall and Lily, and these two, he just looks at them like, see, they found each other. They found their soulmate. And so he's out looking for that love at first sight kind of soulmate. Yet what the show's trying to do all along while he's out there looking for his soulmate, it's continually trying to show you that Marshall and Lily aren't perfect for each other. They're very imperfect, actually. But yet they've committed themselves to each other and to each other's imperfections, and they keep trying to make it work, and they do everything they can to love each other despite each other's issues, if you will. And yet the whole time, Ted's out there looking for my soulmate, my soulmate, my soulmate. And what does he have? Failure after failure after failure after failure. The whole show is about his failure in trying to find his soulmate. Because why? Newsflash. The soulmate's not out there. It just doesn't, doesn't even happen. Uh, and this idea of finding a soulmate comes out of our consumeristic culture. It blends right in with it. The consumeristic culture, which tells you that the customer is always right. And in the global economy, you're bound to find the perfect product. Uh, I mean, think about it. If you search long enough on Amazon, you will find the perfect product. Or somewhere else on the internet is bound to have exactly what you want. Um, the, the, the slogans of all of our consumerism, just think about food, for instance. You deserve a break today. You deserve it, right? Think about what you deserve out of your relationships, out of your food, out of your fast food. Think about what it is that you deserve. Burger King, have it your way. I mean, shouldn't you have it your way? Shouldn't everything in life be your way? Shouldn't the person you be with forever do things your way? Wouldn't that just make sense to everybody? Or IHOP, come hungry, leave happy. 
maybe bloated and full of regrets, but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever left there happy. Um, <laughs> but this idea that you deserve happiness, uh, that you deserve to have things your way, we take this mindset into our, our relationships where we basically have the idea of you adjust to me or I'm out. You do things my way, the way that I want them, or I'm out of here. And when we go to marriage with this mindset of, of, here's what I want and need from you, you're in for a difficult ride. When you go into marriage with the idea that my personal happiness is my highest priority and that you need to be about my happiness, uh, marriage is going to be in trouble from that point forward. Uh, when both people are looking to have their needs net, meet their needs met more than they're looking to meet other people's needs, you're in for a power struggle. They're both trying to extract out of the other person what it is that they want. But if you think about the marriage vows that we've been going through in this series, they're not particularly consumer friendly, are they? I mean, let's go back over this. It says, I take you to have and to hold from this day forward, no matter what blessings or trials God allows to come into our life, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love, honor, and cherish, and be loyal only unto you till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. What exactly is it you're committing yourself to? Have you ever really thought about that in detail? I'm committing myself to a potentially sickly broke person for the rest of my life. <laughs> really, that, that's exactly what you just committed to. Uh, further, I'm committing myself to somebody who's probably just going to make my life worse. That's the whole for better or for worse piece. And here's a newsflash. They're a sinner. They're going to sin. So what does that guarantee? It's going to be worse. It is. I, I, I told you this in the past. Whenever I do pre-marriage counseling, I always have them look at each other and say, you know, I said, we need to do kind of our real marriage vows before we get up and do the fake public ones. And they kind of look at me like, well, just, just look at you. Just humor me here. You know, say, I just want to let you know I love you. I, and they, they look at each other. They say, or say, repeat after me. I state your name, and they all say state your name instead of their actual name. It's funny. Yeah, it's original joke. Uh, th then they come back and they say, you know, love you, but before we go any further, you have to know something on the front end. I'm a sinner, and because I'm a sinner, I'm going to make you more miserable than anybody else in this life ever will. And there's some truth to that. There's some nervous laughter in here because they've experienced that. And there's some others in here go, oh, I know better than to laugh right now. Mm -mm, I ain't saying a word. Mm -mm. Um. But the consumer approach to wedding vows is basically we're saying, I will be what I should be as long as you are what you should be. But real vows are, aren't that at all. We, we want wedding vows that sort of, you know, if we were to give honest wedding vows, we'd say, well, I'm not really sure I like the open-endedness and the amb ambiguity of those kind of wedding vows. I mean, I'm all for richer or for poorer, but can we set like a, like a, like a floor on what the poorer thing is? Like, you need to be gainfully employed, making at least 45000 a year with, with benefits, okay? I mean, let's just, just put that as a floor. Oh, yeah, well, you need to at least maintain the same weight you're at right now. Oh, am I getting too real for people? Okay. Uh, oh, well, you need to make me always feel loved. I want some romance. Oh, yeah, well, you need to make me feel like a man. A lot of nervous laughter. Because we would never say that those would be our wedding vows. I've never, by the way, I've never let somebody make up their wedding vows because I'm always afraid I'm going to get some garbage like this. But although those aren't our stated wedding vows, 
many of us have those things in the back of our mind. Pastor Chris said something very profound the very first week of this series. He said, your expectations are predetermined resentments. These expectations that you go into marriage with of whatever the floor is on worse or poorer or sickness or trials or whatever it is, whatever, whatever floor expectation you have, you're predetermining what your resentment's going to be when all of a sudden they don't live up to what you feel was their end of the bargain. Did you realize there's no their end of the bargain on this? What a wedding vow is? It's all about what I'm promising that I'm going to do. And if you think about it, these are all future promises. It's not current. It's not saying, I presently promise to do this. I mean, that's kind of a given. You wouldn't be standing up there if that wasn't a given. The marriage vows are all about what I'm going to do from this day forward. Uh, I mean, it ends with, till death do us part. This is a long-term thing. Death's a long way away, especially when you're getting married. It just seems like you can't even fathom what that is like all the way down the road. But God's devised marriage to be a covenant to reflect the kind of covenant love that he has for us. Uh, I always say this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you'll enjoy for all eternity. And what I mean by that is not just that's what the purpose of life is. What I'm saying is God, who is the author and the creator of everything that you experience in life, is all funneling you towards, pointing you towards, helping you understand, helping you learn about, helping you experience that reality. And if you think about that statement, what that statement is, when it says this life is about nothing more than a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. What is that describing? It's describing a covenant. It's describing a covenant relationship. One that is for eternity. It is a relationship that is for eternity. Uh, the word covenant comes up over 330 times in the Bible. It is one of the, it is, I don't know if I could say it's one of the or it is the primary theme of the scriptures because all the scriptures are about God's relationship with us and the very nature and the heart of God's relationship with us is covenant. Uh, one of the first covenants we see in the Bible is where God makes a covenant with Noah that I'll never again flood the earth. And so I'm going to have a relationship with you. Then God comes back and with Abraham and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Moses, uh, in one of his last sermons, describes, he kind of relives, he goes back over with the people and redescribes that covenant relationship that God has with the people. And he says this, this is shortly before Moses dies. He wants to remind, this, he's giving this speech to the younger generation. What happens is, I'm kind of give you a little bit of biblical history. What happens is the people are all enslaved in Egypt. Moses says, let my people go. Uh, they have the 10 plagues. They go out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They go through the wilderness. He leads them straight to the promised land. The people are like, nah, I don't think we can go in. I don't think God can handle something like this. So Moses is like, really? You don't think God can handle this? Like, no, we don't really think so. Okay, fine. So that generation wanders around in the wilderness for the next 40 years until they all die out. Now, all of their, they've all now died out, and now it's just their kids who are left, uh, their descendants, who haven't learned all this stuff. They don't, they don't know all this stuff. And so Moses is sort of like educating them before he passes away. He's like, listen, you guys are about to go in the promised land, but I want to make sure you guys know what your parents knew before I go. And so he reminds them of the covenant that God made. And so he says to them in Deuteronomy 29, he says, you all are standing here and you're about to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God. The covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm to you to this day that you are his people and that he may be your God as he promised and he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So making this covenant with you, not only with you, you who are standing here today with us in the presence of our Lord, but also those who are not here today. In other words, he's saying this is a covenant not just with you, but to everybody who would come after you who has a relationship with God. This is who this covenant is with. And so he's going back and reminding them of what the covenant is like 
um, going back to the covenant God made with Abraham. Before I go on, though, did you notice the personal pronouns in there? It says that you are his people and he is your God. One of the natures, uh, one of the characteristics of a covenant relationship is a sense of possession. In the same way that you would say, well, this is my wife and I am her husband. Uh, there is an uh, attachment there that is a permanency. Uh, it's not a possession in terms of like sort of slave ownership kind of thing. Rather, it's, the, it's, 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 a, it's a picture of permanency, that we are united together. We are one. Uh, he's my God. I'm his. She's my wife. I'm her husband. There's, there's a permanency there that comes with a covenant because this is a covenant that lasts for all eternity, saying this is a permanence to this. Not like, well, well we're dating. No, it's, this is a permanency. I am his and, and she is mine. And he's going back to and reminding them of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. If you go back over to Genesis 12 and 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you'll see this covenant God makes with Abraham where he says, I will be your God, uh, you will be uh, mine. Uh, he says to Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, don't be afraid, I am your shield, I am your very great reward. And then what he does is he goes on and he makes a covenant with Abraham. Basically, the covenant was this. Uh, back, same with Adam and Eve. Where God says, I will be your God, you'll be my people. Uh, if you sin, though, uh, there's a penalty for that. There's a consequence to that. And so what happens with Abraham is Abraham uh, is told to set up a, the, the covenant, covenant ceremony. What they would do back in the day is they would take an animal and they would cut the animal in half and they would lay the animal halves on either side. And they would make a sort of a pathway between these animal halves. And if you could picture back in the day of a, uh, picture a brutal culture, whatever you want to go back to the Braveheart days or even before, seems like the older you get, the more brutal things were, Go back to a very brutal culture where a king has conquered another nation. And so the conquering king would say to the king that he conquered, we're going to make a promise, we're going to make an agreement that from this day forward you will bring to me whatever the stipulations are. 200 pounds of gold every year, 600 pounds of silver, 400 head of livestock, whatever it may be. And every year you owe this to me as a tribute or as a tax. And if you don't do that, you see these animals right here? That's what's going to happen to you. And so what happened is the, the, the conquering king would stand there while the king that's been conquered would literally walk between these two pieces of animal that are killed and laid on the ground, right? So that way you'd have a very visual reminder of what's going to happen to you if you don't do this, right? Now, would the conquering king walk through? No. And even if he did, it wouldn't matter because he's not going to let that happen to him, right? Like, what's he promising? I'm promising not to attack you anymore. But what if I decide to? Eh, what are you going to do about it? right? So the conquering king would never pass through the pieces. So God says to Abraham, we're going to have a covenant. And in the same way I told Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree, you will die. Abraham goes out there and he cuts the animal in half and he lays it all out, gets it all set up. And what is Abraham thinking? I'm going to have to walk through these pieces. But what happens is God knocks Abraham out and Abraham's kind of half unconscious. And when he comes to, he sees the presence of God moving through the pieces and then the ceremony ending. Abraham never walks through the pieces. And so what God is saying is, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. And if you sin, it's going to cost me my life. That's the covenant I'm making with you. Just let that sink in for a minute. If, if either one of us doesn't fail, if either one of us fails to keep up our end of the agreement, it's going to cost me my life. Who would make a covenant like that? And who would make a covenant like that knowing the sinful nature of human, humanity? God does. He makes that covenant, which is why later on, when Jesus comes and he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. What does he mean? Well, we get a picture of that when he shares in communion 
and he looks out at the people and he says, this cup, uh, this is Luke 22, in the same way after the supper he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. What's he saying? He's saying, what I'm about to do is going to fulfill the covenant of Abraham and I'm going to make a new covenant with you that's based on my death on the cross. So with Abraham, it was always, it's going to eventually cost me my life. Now Jesus is saying, I'm giving my life. The, prom- or the, the payment's been fulfilled. So I can look to you forever and a day from this day forward and say, I have a relationship with you for all time. That's why when I invite you to come for communion, we talk about how the bread reminds us that Jesus died on the cross. And what do I say about the, 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 the cup? It's a promise that God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what that covenant is all about. Uh, Hebrews talks about this over in Hebrews 9. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, the promise of an eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set free from the sins that are committed under the first covenant. What's he describing there? He's saying that, that Jesus has fulfilled everything that was a part of the Abraham covenant. And Jesus says, I, I'm doing this so that you and I can have a eternal relationship. What do I always say? This life's about nothing more than a loving relationship with God that you enjoy for all eternity. Do you notice how that language comes right out of this kind of words? Where he says, I'm making this covenant with you for an eternal inheritance. It's a promise, eternal inheritance. It's a covenant that God is making with us for all time. So what are we saying here? That Jesus is modeling for us the kind of relationship he wants us to have with one another. Which is why when you go over to Ephesians 4, I think Pastor Alex preached on this a couple weeks ago. Right in the middle of Ephesians 4, it says that we are to love our spouse, love our, love our husbands, love your wives, in the same way that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What's he describing there? He's describing the fact that Jesus was a sacrifice given to keep the covenant and the relationship between you and me. Jesus was a sacrifice so that we could keep the covenant that we have with God. And he's saying that the model for our relationships is not one of consumerism, I will as long as you will, but rather I will sacrifice in order to keep this relationship intact. I will give in order to keep this relationship intact. He didn't look down. Think about Jesus at the cross. He didn't look down with admiration and affection and go, tell you what, you're the one I've always wanted. Y'all people are my soulmate. I'm going to do this because of how good you look, how kind you've been, how wonderful you are. You know, you deserve this. Is that what he says from the cross? No, what's the context? Humanity is mocking him. They've betrayed him. They've denied him. They've abandoned him. And yet he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the picture of what a biblical covenant is and what it means to keep a biblical covenant. So what is marriage then? Marriage is our opportunity to experience and to have this kind of covenant relationship that will last for our whole life. And in the midst of doing that, we begin to learn what it really takes to keep that kind of relationship. We begin to understand how much God must truly love us because we, we get to experience firsthand just how hard it is to keep that kind of a covenant. Isn't that what marriage is? Where you get to experience just how hard it is to keep that kind of covenant. Now, I always say parenting is a much easier covenant to make. When you, when you become a parent, you promise you know, to love and forgive your kids for all time. But it's like God gives you like this cheat card, Right? There's something like a natural thing where I don't know why it is that I just naturally will forgive my kids even when I don't want to, I just do. You don't get that in marriage. You don't get that when you're step-parenting either. You have to work on that one just as much. But in marriage, it's tough, isn't it? You get to experience what it's like to love someone unconditionally even when it pains you, even when they hurt you. 
you get to understand what sacrificial love truly is. Uh, I would even say you get to understand what true love actually is. Uh, you, you begin to understand your own need for love and for grace from somebody else uh, and that they kept this relationship with you. You understand your need to forgive again and again and again. Just picture Peter asking Jesus, how many times must I forgive somebody? It's the same question you might ask in marriage. How many times do I need to forgive them? 70 or seven times? 70 times seven? Or is it you get to the point where love just keeps no record of wrongs? We get to experience that kind of thing. Marriage is God's tool to not only teach us about what a covenant is, but also to help us understand what it's like to love like Jesus, to help us understand how much Jesus loves us. It's God's tool to make us more like Jesus. It's God's tool to make us more holy. That's why I say one of the best marriage books ever is a book you don't need to read, you just need to read the title. What if God's purpose in marriage isn't to make us happy, but rather to make us holy? Uh, It's a book by, I think, it's Thomas. I want to say it's Gary Thomas. I can't remember. I wish I could credit him better, but I just remember, I think it was called Sacred Marriage or Sacred Love. I don't know. I just remember the byline. What if God's purpose is in marriage is to make us holy? In other words, teach us about covenant, teach us about what it's like to love like Jesus likes, rather than to consumeristically tell you that you deserve to be happy. And if you can just understand that one piece about your marriage vow, it'll change the way you view marriage. It'll change the way you see the person that you're with. Um, If marriage isn't about living happily ever, but rather about learning to live a holy life, it will transform how you see your relationships. It will transform how you see marriage. And the question is, am I going to accept this person as God's perfect provision to make me more like him, or will I only accept this person if they're my soulmate? Think about that for a minute. Will I accept this person as God's perfect provision to make me more like him? Think about how that changes how you view your spouse. They force you to love them more. They force you to forgive them. They force you to accept them. They force you to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And Sometimes you might look at your spouse and go, yes, you are the perfect provision to teach me about love and sacrifice. Versus, I'm looking for my soulmate. Uh, as we close out our marriage series, I just want you to be thinking about that as you move forward. Uh, in your relationships with covenant and love. Would you want me to close our time in prayer? Father, I thank you, Lord, for loving us with a covenant kind of love, the kind of love that isn't based on our behavior, isn't based on whether or not we've messed up. Father, it's rather it's just based on your love for us. On top of that, you've paid for all of our sins. You've taken on the burden of maintaining this relationship 100%. Father, may we be so inspired by the kind of love and vow that you've made to us that we might be able to keep that kind of a commitment and covenant towards one another. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.